0: open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Uh, Mark chapter 5. Mark is in uh, what we call the New Testament. Uh, the Bible's divided up into Old New Testament. Mark chapter 5. Mark is in the New Testament. And as you're turning there, I just want to let you know where we're going uh, next week. Just going kind to of give you a little heads up. Next week uh, will be when there's five Sundays in a month. We keep our kindergarten through fifth graders all with us. Uh, so they'll be here with us. So that's a special time. Uh, but then also our Peru missions trip team. Uh, we just got back just a few weeks ago from Peru and the team, uh, we won't have a sermon uh, necessarily. We're going to just allow this team to share uh, about the trip. Uh, so if you are interested in hearing about what to Place and I know many of you prayed for us and gave for this for this team to go. I encourage you to come uh, next Sunday. So Mark chapter five, uh, have that in front of you. So just a few weeks ago, uh, the eyes of the world were just focused on this remote cave in Thailand, as twelve boys, all part of the same soccer team, along with their coach, were trapped. Uh, they went in there, and after they went in uh, to the cave to hike around, uh, waters came in behind them, and they were unable uh, to get back out. And I think we would honestly describe that situation as hopeless. Uh, without the intervention, the help of a, a team of people from around the world to engineer a way, a, a rescue plan to get them out, there was no way these boys and their coach were going to get out. But nearly three weeks, they were there three weeks in that cave. Three weeks later, about three weeks later, we saw the last of the boys and their coach come out of that cave. Hopelessness was replaced with hope. Hopelessness was replaced with hope. And as I think about that word hopelessness, I believe it accurately describes the two situations, really two people. Uh, that we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 5. Their, their situation is different than those boys and their coach trapped in a cave in Thailand. But it's hopeless. The situations that we're going to be uh, learn about and read about today, we're, we would describe them as hopeless. The, these people have kind of came to an end of the ropes. But there was nothing else they could do. But hope showed up. And hope showed up in the form of a person that person's name is Jesus. And today, uh, you, you, your situation is most likely different than the, the, the boys in Thailand, the coach in Thailand. It's, it's most likely different than these two people, this man and this woman we're going to read about in, in Mark chapter 5. It's probably different. But I wonder today how many of us just this past week said either out loud or maybe a whisper to ourselves, I have no idea what I'm going to do. It wasn't just a a false humility, it was reality for you. I know I uttered those words this week. I don't know what we're going to do here. And I wonder today, again, your situation, it it might not be as grand a scale as as being trapped in a cave or even what we're going to read today. But you, honestly, if you're on it, you just sense like, I'm pretty hopeless right now. And today, as we go through these stories, I hope that as you see hope arise in these situations, that for you too, that the situation you're facing, that would be a catalyst, like it was for these people in Mark chapter 5, it was a catalyst to move them towards Jesus and experience hope because Jesus is accessible and he's available. And we'll talk more about that. So Mark chapter 5, hopefully you have it in front of you. We're going to really look at the, uh, the, the second half, so to speak, of the chapter. We'll kind of break it apart because it's a large chunk of scripture. We'll break it apart a little bit, talk about it. But it starts in verse 21 is where we're going to start today. It says when Jesus again had crossed over by the boat by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Most likely, he has traveled from uh, the the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you're new to geography, and and, and where, where are we? You have Jerusalem's in the south, and you have the Sea of Galilee in the north. And Jesus uh, earlier in Mark chapter five was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and now he has made his way back. Across across to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, which is where he spent most of his time um, did most of his earthly ministry. He was on the western shores, southern shore of the Sea of Galilee around a community called Capernaum. We don't know exactly if he's there in Capernaum, but he's most likely in that region where he, he has been followed and healed and preached and, and a crowds when he was there would gather around him. So now he's come back and we're told here in Mark chapter 5 that another large crowd, it's almost, it's almost like they were waiting for him. Waiting for Jesus to come back from the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's back. And this large crowd again, just the idea is pressing all around him as soon as he steps off the boat. (laughs) Then one of the synagogue rulers, named Jairus, came there. A synagogue ruler would have been one who, who took care of the, the practical daily needs of the synagogue. They took care of the scrolls. They took care of the building. They took care of the service. They, they took care of the logistical elements of the synagogue, what needed to be done. And there was typically more than one ruler. And Jairus in this community is just one of the rulers. It was a, it was a prestigious role, job in that day and time. and So you have this crowd just gathering around Jesus and one makes his way right to him and I I don't think it was easy. I think Jairus had to kind of push his way, elbow his way through the crowd to get to Jesus. And what's more important to note about Jairus is, yes, he is a synagogue ruler, but more important in this context, he's a dad. And he's a dad whose heart is broken and desperate. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him. He says, "My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live." So Jesus went with him, and not only him and Jairus, but in the disciples, but the large crowd followed and pressed around him. He doesn't give his title. He doesn't give his credentials. He just says, I'm a dad. And my daughter's dying. We don't know if she's been sick for a long time. We don't know if this was something that all of a sudden came on to physically to her this week. This day, but they know she's close to death. And and Jarius has heard about Jesus. He's heard about what he's done. Uh, Earlier in Mark, we saw Jesus set a man free in a synagogue, and maybe that was the synagogue that Jarius would have been in and saw this happen. So he's heard about Jesus. So when his daughter is dying and there's no one else, there's no doctor, there's no medicine, there's no therapy, there's, there's no one else. He hears that Jesus come back and he makes his way. And pushes through the crowd and says, Please, he falls in front of him. He's he a man of, who, has, who has power, who has people work for him. But he falls, he kneels before him and says, Please come, just lay your hands on her so that she would live. So again, the crowd just kind of moves with, with Jairus and with Jesus and with the disciples. In this passage, Is what we would call a Mark sandwich. Mark writes this way in a few other uh, areas in his uh, chapters in his gospel. He has two stories in one section, and you call it a Mark sandwich. Two stories, two miracles, both help apply or uh, bring application to one, help us understand one another. So here's the second part of the story. So you have this, this crowd following, and then in verse 25 it says this. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 12 years of her life. We don't know how old she is, but for 12 years of her life, there's been this non stop bleeding. Continual for 12 years. We're told a little bit of Mark gives us a little bit of detail, commentary about her life. She had suffered under a great uh, a, a great deal under the care of many doctors, and you might wonder what does that mean? Were they were they uh, cruel to her in some way? You have to remember, uh, you know, when we call we talk about practicing medicine today in our day, and they were really practicing medicine then. Uh, some of the treatments that doctors would try to or were prescribe to people were just horrendous but they were trying their best to to fix or to heal or to help alleviate the symptoms and the pain or the problem that they were facing but some of the things caused more pain than what the people were facing so she suffered we're told a great deal under the care of all these doctors and we're told this yet instead of getting better she got worse so 12 years it just keeps getting worse when she, like Jairus, had heard about Jesus, so she lives in that area, had heard about him, maybe had heard some of the teachings, seen the miracle, maybe the miracles that he had performed, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak or touched the, the hem, if you will, of his garment. The word literally means the tassels. And if you've seen uh, Jewish men, if you've maybe been to New York City or even, uh, even in Cleveland, uh, uh, more urban context, if you've seen Jewish men walk around, some of them are wearing tassels. You, you see these tassels, typically they don't hang, they hang from their belts now. And it's, it's described in Numbers, I believe it's 14, that to wear tassels at the edge. And the, the numbers of the, the knots, I believe it is in the tassels, are, are the numbers of commandments. And it reminds them as they put these on every day of the commandments and, and God's design for them to follow the commandments. And here, Jesus, being a Jew, would have had tassels, most likely near probably the end of his robe that he was wearing. And this woman says, if I only just, I just need to touch the end of his garment, the end of his robe, so to speak. And this isn't the first time people have just been trying to touch Jesus to be healed. And in Mark chapter three, we're told the crowd was so big pressing around him because people just wanted to touch him so that they would be healed. If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt, she felt something in her body. She was freed from her suffering. And at once, Mark gives us a commentary here: of what, what happened and what did Jesus feel? What did Jesus experience? And at once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. And he asked this question. He turned around to the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? I don't know if you've ever been in that type of crowd. Maybe it was at a concert and you had floor seats and there weren't any seats. And you were just packed in. And just surrounded by people. When I when I thought of being in a crowd, my mind went to a few years ago at the Cavs uh, championship parade in 2016. We took our kids down there, uh, and we were part of the I don't know how many uh, thousands upon thousands of people that were there in downtown Cleveland. And you couldn't move. People were pressing around you. When Luke records this exact story, he uses the word, the crowd was almost crushing Jesus. The better question would have been, who hasn't been touching you? I mean, Jesus, everyone is touching you. But Jesus knows he felt the power go from him. And he asks, who touched me? Who touched my clothes? And the disciples, you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? Like, Jesus, like, everyone. Like, we're touching, I'm touching you, everyone around here. In verse 32, it says this, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Just pause here for a moment. I don't want us to forget the first person, Jarius. How do you believe he's responding right now? Jesus has been, uh, he got to Jesus and Jesus, he asked him about his daughter to come and heal his daughter. Now they're on their way to his home so Jesus can lay his hands on her and she could be well. But now this, something has happened and Jesus is stopping the, 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 the movement towards his house and he's asking who touched him. And it's like, wait a minute, I was first in line. <laughs> I'm like, I was here first. And who touched you? Like, who cares who touched you? My daughter is dying. But Jesus, it's interesting to observe how he responds to this, what we might call an interruption. He says he kept looking around. And in other versions of this story, it says he kept looking around for the woman who touched him. And there's a reason Why? Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, again, I believe she, we don't know her name, but I believe she's just trying, she knows the bleeding has stopped, and she is just kind of slinking back into the crowd. I'm going to get out of here as fast as I can. I'm healed. I'm good. But now the crowd has stopped. There's questions. Who touched him? And maybe Jerry's just saying, can someone speak up? Like, who touched you? Like, someone tell Jesus who touched him. And she moves back towards Jesus. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And we're told her body posture, her in her her posture inside with trembling, with uh, trembling with fear. And it's not a fear of what is he going to do to me, but it's a holy awe of what just took place. It's similar to the fear that the disciples experienced when Jesus told the waves and wind to be calm. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The fear that this woman displays both externally and internally is a holy awe that no doctor for 12 years could fix and heal what I've been dealing with. But in a moment, I just touched the edge of this guy's garment and my bleeding stopped. And there's fear. There's a holy awe, if you will, of what she just experienced. And she tells the whole truth. She shares, this is why I did what I did. It's good to know a bit of the background of what this woman would have experienced because of her uh, ailment, because of her suffering in that culture. She would have been marginalized, much like a leper. Lepers lived on the outside of the community. Lepers were continually unclean. They, They couldn't come into the community. They couldn't be a part of the religious gathering, the synagogues, because they were continually unclean clean. And this woman bleeding continually for 12 straight years would have been unclean, just like a leper. There was no way, no ceremony, no sacrifice, nothing she could do to be considered clean and come back into the community. So she was marginalized. One uh, pastor says this, an unclean woman Couldn't go to the synagogue. She couldn't go to the temple. She was an outcast for 12 years. If she touched her husband, he was unclean. If she touched her children, they were unclean. If she touched her friends, they were unclean. And if she touched a stranger, he was unclean. So think about that in light of what she just did. Most likely, like Jairus, she had to kind of elbow her way through the crowd to get to Jesus. It was a huge risk on her part to do what she just did. And she tells the whole truth. And Jesus says this, daughter, child, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. The word peace there is shalom. It means wholeness. Go and be whole and be freed from your suffering. This was so significant for this woman that Jesus could have just said, I, we could have read the text, it could say he felt power and he kept on going. But he stops and he speaks to this woman in front of everyone who most likely, because it's a close-knit community, probably knew who that was and what the ailment was and what that all meant that she had been through the crowd and maybe people are like, did she touch me? Did she touch me? Did she touch you? So Jesus has this conversation with her in front of everyone and I believe in a way he's not only healing her body, he's healing her relationally within the community. Say, now become back, become part again of the community. He was healing her relationally and physically. As she came back and he talked to her. Now back to the first story. This delay has not been good for Jairus. While Jesus, in verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, so he's still speaking to this woman, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and they give him the worst news a parent could ever hear Your daughter is dead. Why bother, they say, why bother the teacher anymore? It's interesting, they call Jesus the teacher. Don't bother him anymore. He could have helped us when she was dying, but now that she's dead, don't, there's nothing else he can do. And Jesus hearing that, again, he's speaking to the woman, but he hears what these men, the news that these men bring. He says, ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, he told Jairus, he told the dad, don't be afraid, just believe. And it's interesting, even just believe, believe that I can do, believe that she'll be healed, believe that she'll live in light of even what just took place, what you just saw happen to this woman who just shared with all of us around. I think Jarius was in that inner circle of people in this crowd who heard the story for 12 years, I've been subject to bleeding, and in a moment I was healed. He's hearing that, and then he hears the news that his daughter is dead, and Jesus says, just believe. And I wonder if that, that, that story, that, that eyewitness account, that testimony gave his heart a little bit of faith to say, okay, I'll believe. And it might have been as small as a mustard seed. <laughs> we talked about the mustard seed even just a few weeks ago in Mark chapter uh, 4. So they begin, they picked the journey back up to go to uh, Jairus' house. And he did not let anyone follow him, so they get close. And he just brings in Peter, James, and John. And Peter is the one who told Mark, who wrote Mark, about all these stories. So that's probably how we get this, is Mark, or uh, Peter was there and saw all of this and experienced all this and tells us. So he takes Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when he came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw the commotion and the people crying and wailing. Grief in the Middle East is different than here today. It, it was the, the, as soon as someone died that day, they were put in the tomb. It's very different than what we do today. Our practices of grief uh, today and funeral processes and uh, viewings and, and calling hours and all those stuff. But immediately the person would die and after the person would die, they would put them in the tomb. So you have this, this wailing the, and many times they would hire professional mourners, and that's what they would do. They would mourn with the people, the family, the friends that were mourning. So there's this, this, uh, there's this, this sound. Some of you have walked through just tra- tra- tragic loss. And you know the sounds of that, the immediate sounds of a, when a loved one or a close friend has died. Imagine that sound as Jesus and, and a few of the disciples. I don't know how Jesus kept the crowd away. I, I'd like to know more about that. But somehow he kept the crowd away. And, but he comes upon this scene. And they're wailing, they're crying. And he went in and said, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. She's dead. They, they were very acquainted with death. It, it, it's safe to say it was, a very, it was common for them to be around death. They knew when someone died. And Jesus says, she's not dead. She's just asleep. And after he put them all out, he took the parents, the child's father and mother and those disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were with him, and they went into where the child was. And he took her by the hand and said to her, "Talitha cum." Let me interpret that for you. Which means <laughs> took you a bit there. Little girl or child, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl, the little girl stood up and began walking around. She didn't skip a beat. It wasn't like her body needed time to adjust. I don't be when I get out of bed. Like my knees need a few minutes to get going. Like this girl just bound like she's up off the bed and she's walking around like nothing ever happened. And at this, they were completely astonished. Again, it's that, it's that fear, it's that holy awe of like, who is this that the dead rise? And he gave them strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them, I like this little detail. Jesus, again, not just caring for her, body, her soul, healing her, but he says, give her something to eat. And that could also be there's something about showing Jesus after he rose from the dead, he ate to show that he was really alive. And he says, give her something to eat. She's not just some uh, being or, or or maybe ghost-like. Uh, she's real. She has a body. She can eat. So give her something to eat. What we've watched over these just few chapters in the marked, in the the book of Mark to kind of give you a summary. We've seen Jesus be the Lord of creation. He told the storm to be still, the the waves to be quiet. He's Lord over demons. We watched him set a man who'd been possessed probably by thousands of demons who no one could set free. Set free. We saw him Lord over sickness. We watched him heal a woman who doctors could do nothing for her. And now we see that Jesus is Lord over death. It's kind of a summary of those, these last couple chapters in Mark. And even in this chapter, these few verses today, hopelessness. Both had come to kind of the end of themselves. There was nothing a doctor could do for this woman, and there's nothing anyone could do for this, this uh, synagogue ruler's daughter. But hope showed up, and it showed up in the person of Jesus because Jesus was accessible and available. He was accessible these two people, this man and this woman, couldn't have been, on, uh, uh, could have been further apart on the social spectrum in this culture. But they both had access to Jesus. They could have been further apart as it relates to the, the ladder, so to speak, of who's important and who's not important. One pastor, he says this, they're an interesting duo they have no relationship with each other and there's no reason they would ever know each other but they are brought together through suffering. A man and a woman, a, one rich, one poor, one respected, one rejected, one honored, one ashamed, one leading a synagogue, the other excommunicated from the synagogue. One with a 12-year-old daughter who was dying and one with a 12-year-old disease suffering. Completely different people yet both had access to Jesus. What we've seen as Jesus proclaimed the gospel, which literally means good news, is that this good news isn't just for the social elite or those on the top of the food chain, so to speak, but this good news, what Jesus is preaching and doing, is for all people. Rich, poor, synagogue ruler, excommunicated from the synagogue. They both had access to Jesus and therefore could experience hope. What about you and I today? Do you feel the same privilege of access? And do you experience it? I wonder what the internal message that Jairus and the woman might have thought as it relates to access. We all have an internal message. For Jairus, the access might have been I don't need it. I have everything I need. Why would I need Jesus? But it was tragedy, it was suffering that was the catalyst to move him to Jesus. That wasn't the the, the internal message probably going on in the woman's, uh, this nameless woman's life. Her internal message was probably like I don't deserve it because of who I am. And I wonder for us today, maybe that one of those might describe you. I don't need it. I'm, I'm self-sufficient. I could take care of things on my own. But maybe what you're facing today, this week, this month, this year, is going to be that catalyst that's going to move you towards Jesus to say, I do need him. And maybe some of you sit here today and you're like, I don't deserve it. Your, your situation is different than this woman. You're not, you don't feel unclean or unworthy because of a, a health bleeding for 12 years. But maybe as you look at what you've done throughout your life, you feel like, I don't deserve access to God. I feel unworthy because of what I've this, 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 and this. Why would a God ever love me because I've done these things? But the glory of the gospel that Jesus is proclaiming and living is that he, anyone has access to Jesus. Rich, poor, I don't deserve it. I I don't need it. They all have access. And it's not just access. Jesus was available. He was was accessible, but he was available. He, He gave of his time. Again, the crowds are pressing in around him, but yet he cares for the crowds, but yet he also cares for these two individuals. In very intimate, unique ways. He was going, he went with Jairus, and he talked to this woman. In the midst of the crowds, there was individual care for these two people. The world's population right now is 7.6 billion people. Live on this blue ball in the sky that we call Earth. Earth. You take that down a little bit further, in the United States, there are roughly over 300 million people here in the United States. Have you ever felt like a number? We actually all have numbers. Yesterday, I was filling out some paperwork and had to put my kids and Lori and I's social security numbers, and I was just putting it into the the, the form online. I was like, huh, we all have a number. But Jesus doesn't see us as a number in the midst of 7.6 billion people, in the midst of 300 million people, in the midst of the population of of the state we live in, in the midst of the community we live in, in the midst of this place today, Jesus sees both, the crowd, but he also sees you. And he knows intimately what you're facing. And he wants to walk with you through it. The Bible says he'll never leave us forsake us. I think we would all admit sometimes it feels like he's not there. And maybe that has to do with wishing the situations would change and those types of things. But sometimes we want, is he there? And that's where faith comes in, to believe he is. And he's available to walk with us just like he walked with Jairus and just like he cared for this nameless woman. So later on this afternoon, our family will get to engage in one one of those wonderful family experiences of a long road trip. We'll be getting in the van, and we'll be heading the 10, 11, 12 hours to visit my family in New England for a quick trip before uh, the school year gets up and going again. There's a lot of wonderful things about that experience that's coming up. Uh, Pray for my kids. They survive uh, the trip. As we make the trip, we take 90 uh, through Erie, PA, into New York, and then all the way into Massachusetts, and as we enter the state of New York, there's a rest stop that we try to get to on the first leg of the trip, and it's kind of a unique rest stop in that when you pull off onto the, uh, the rest stop, the rest stop isn't on your side of the highway. We're heading east. It's not on the east side, but it's in the middle of both, east and west. So when you get out, you park in a parking lot, you have to cross a bridge, walk on a bridge over the highway to this this rest stop that's in the middle. It's fun to watch people that it's their first time at this rest stop. Because when you come out, you just think, oh, this is the way I'm going to go. And I have seen countless people, my parents included, one time when they were driving out to visit us, people go out to a parking lot that they're not supposed to. and They think their car's been stolen. And then they come back into the person working at the information desk and says, can you, can you call the police? My car's been stolen. And then the person usually behind the desk will say, which direction are you traveling? And they tell them, they say, that's the way you need to go. And these people make their way out. We are very familiar with it. But even for us still, we have to pay attention to the direction we came from and move towards that direction if we're going to get out to our car. These people... Jairus and this woman were familiar with Jesus. They had heard about him. But they had to make the choice to move towards Jesus. It was risky. It was a vulnerable experience. It was a faith-filled experience. But they had to move towards him. I wonder today, we might be, you might be very familiar with Jesus. But I want to ask you the question: Are you moving towards Him? Are you taking those steps to move towards Him? Are you acknowledging one of the ways I believe we move towards Him is we acknowledge our realities. I believe Jesus wants to meet us in those moments when we acknowledge, "This is hard," and then the woman had to share, told the whole truth. It's a very vulnerable experience. The psalms are filled with psalmists that are saying, "God, how long is this going to happen?" Why is this going on? They were honest about their realities and in the midst of that, they were moving not away from God in their hopelessness, but moving towards God. And I wonder today, the same God, the same Jesus that was available for this woman and the synagogue ruler is available and accessible for you and I today. Are you moving towards him? like Jairus and the synagogue rule. It is full of risk and faith. But are we moving towards him and in the midst of moving towards him, finding a God of hope who might help our situation, circumstances get better or they might stay the same. But he's willing to walk with us in the midst of it. Might we find that hope in Jesus today? Let me pray for us and we'll sing a closing song as we wrap up our service. So God, thanks uh, for Mark chapter 5, verse 21 to 43. Thanks for the way Mark wrote this, including these two just emotionally powerful stories. I'm thankful that they both, uh, Jesus, you gave the time of day to both people. In this culture, it would have been easy to give the time of day to the important person, the synagogue ruler. But you gave him the time of day. You listened to him and you helped. You walked with him. And you gave this nameless woman. This woman had been marginalized and just an outcast who couldn't really do anything for you. You gave her the time of day. You listened. You cared so well for them Both. I'm thankful, God, today that you are available. You're accessible for anyone here, whether middle school, high school, adults. Thank you, God, for the hope that we can find in the midst of what we're facing today. Might we continually move towards you, intentionally move towards you this week. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.